you may start to notice a significant increase in the quality of our audio, and that is because we've upgraded to a professional podcasting setup. So up until recent episodes, I was traveling around with one little microphone that I would put in between me and the podcast guests, and now we have this flash setup where we each have our own microphone, headsets, and this really cool mixing board, and you've probably seen pictures of that on our Facebook page, in the podcast group, and on our Instagram and Twitter. Now, we couldn't have made the upgrade without the help of the Canellan Airways Trust. The Canellan Airways Trust is a non-profit organisation working to improve the lives of people living and working in outback places across Australia. The Trust offers a range of grant opportunities, major awards and scholarships. Each program has its own focus areas and objectives. However, the overarching mission of the Trust is to fund projects for individuals and organisations that advance the outback. Through their programs, they aim to reduce the negative impact of isolation and distance and enable people to pursue their goals irrespective of their location. Yes, you're hearing correctly. There is an entire foundation dedicated to supporting people living in Outback Australia. Head on over to their website at canellanairwaystrust.org.au or find them on Facebook for more information. And from all of us at Central Station, we'd like to thank Canellan Airways Trust for supporting us and showing that it doesn't matter that we're not in some fancy recording studio in Sydney. We can record professional sounding podcasts from wherever we are, whatever cattle station we're on and whatever corner of the country we're in. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. We all know that when you work on a cattle station, you're bound to come across creatures other than cattle. If you're in the desert country, it might be camels or donkeys. And if you're way up high in the top end, you'll probably see water buffalo. And if you're lucky, or, well, unlucky, depending on how you look at it, a crocodile. Norman Fisher was born and bred in the top end of the Northern Territory, and his family not only ran cattle, but domesticated their own herd of buffalo. However, seeing as one of their stations already had its own supply of saltwater crocodiles, Norman thought he'd try his hand at working with them too. In this episode, I ask Norman about what it's like to work with both livestock and crocs. This is a yarn that you don't want to miss. To begin, I asked Norman to tell me a bit about his childhood. Right, so my childhood, I always lived on the station. We used to um, camp out, mustering most of the dry season. We used to do school of the air correspondence. I used to put our lessons on the cardboard box and sit there and do our lessons. 
We used to have a radio scheduled for school of the air. We used to throw up half an hour a day. We'd throw an aerial in the tree and tune in for the radio sched. And that was our schooling. It was always at home. Never, ever, ever went to town. That was just my upbringing. What was the station that you grew up on? Well, mum and dad owned Mary River when I was a kid, well, born. And then eventually they sold that and we moved to Swim Creek. Swim Creek was bought up um, by the government as a buffalo block and Dad had extensive experience in buffalo. So, I mean, we were selected to come here to promote the buffalo industry, which at the time BTEC was coming in and wiping out all the wild herds of buffalo. So the government was looking for someone to... to um, you breed on buffalo and, and, and have a domestic herd of buffalo. So Dad come here, we come here, I think I was 10 years or 11 years old when we come to Swim Creek. So you grew up on so two different stations, Mary River, and then around the age of 10 or 11 you moved to Swim Creek and basically spent your entire childhood with cattle and buffalo. Um, when did you have your first encounter with a crocodile? When was the first time that you remember seeing one? Um Obviously, we moved from Mary River and come to Swim Creek. I mean, Mary River is much inland from Swim Creek, where we are here now. We come to the coast country. Um, obviously, the coast country is full of crocodiles. And then, obviously, as we was here and worked and lived here, we encountered crocodiles more and more and more and more. And then what got... Me into crocodiles as I done my helicopter license in 98, 99, and then we was flying, I was flying guys around looking for crocodile nests on our place in the first year and and the second year that I had my license, uh, and they was collecting nests on our place. And then that sort of made me think, well, I helped them at the time, but I'm thinking, well, maybe I should be collecting our own nests. And that's sort of where it started for me. I started collecting, got a permit for ourselves, started collecting our own nests and sort of grew from there. So I have to ask, so obviously growing up on a, on a floodplain station, it's, well, more or less infested. Like there's crocodiles everywhere, so you obviously saw them growing up. That's something most Territorians have experienced. There's crocodiles everywhere and, well, at least in the top end. People see them, but not many people, you know, for most of us, we just see them maybe in a zoo or a park or something, and then we go back to our lives. We just don't want anything more to do with them. But you decided to get right into it. Like what – I know you just said, you know, you'd been flying people around, but what made you want to go really – like and actually – because it's a whole different thing from just flying someone else around when they're collecting the eggs. And then if you're getting involved yourself, you are kind of got to get on the ground and get up and close and personal with a crocodile. Like, mm. Yeah, well – Obviously, it's the industry. I mean, the buffalo is one thing, cattle is another thing, and crocodile is another thing. It's the industry that, you know, I stepped into. I mean, we were in the area of the crocodiles, so why not make an industry for me? Um, crocodiles, yeah, I understand, you know, they are dangerous and everything, but, you know, once you start to understand them and, and, and work with them, they're just like any other thing, be buffalo, cattle, whatever it is. It's just another industry, so I just worked with that and grew from there and got my own permits and started collecting other areas and got my own farm and grew from there. How old were you at the time that you started collecting nests yourself? Um, I guess I was about 
25, I'm guessing, Ian. Can't do the maths, but... Do you think being a bit younger also helped that, you know, when we're all younger, we're a bit more brave? Like... Oh, yeah, of course. Um, it was probably, yeah, like a bull at a gate back then, but over the years, I mean, I've been doing it for 20 years now. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot, a lot of experience in the bush, you know, and bush nests. So I don't, um, you know, I don't think like I did back then. I, I can do it a lot easier now than before, more relaxed, can understand, I can read the situation more, like it is a dangerous industry. But really, if you break it down and, and, and do it with a bit of experience and a bit of know-how, it's not that bad. All right. So I want to go through sort of a step-by-step um, of what it what is involved in collecting crocodile eggs, so, you know, especially um, when you're not in a farm environment and you've got to go out and kind of find the nest. And I suppose basically I would, I would assume or presume everybody listening has never had this experience. And until last weekend, I hadn't. And I was just – I found all the little bits of information you were telling me just – completely fascinating and yeah I just was wondering if you could kind of talk us through from planning you know even like time of year like how does it all work like just paint us a picture I guess well the big big thing probably no one really really realizes about um, crock nests in the wild not many of them ever live don't quote me but I'm pretty sure it's only like one percent ever make maturity out of the wild it's floods it's too hot there's some conditions that always kill the eggs, so not many of the eggs ever live in the wild. So in reality, for us, for me, we need to collect the eggs quickly before they're in a nest too long, within the first two weeks is best, optimum, before all the natural elements take their toll on the eggs. So for us, all my areas, I'm trying to collect the eggs quickly, get them in into an incubated system controlled environment to look after the eggs better because not many of them ever ever live in the wild and i mean the the crop population is exploding as it is so you can imagine if even 50 percent of them ever live in the wild where would it be now so what time of year do and this is so is it only saltwater crocodiles that people collect eggs for or do they collect eggs from freshwater crocodiles too? No, it's only saltwater crocodiles. Saltwater crocodiles only lay, uh, make their nests in the wet season. So their nests rely on the green grass grown from the wet season to incubate their eggs. Freshwater crocodiles rely on um, the build-up season and they use the hot sand through the build-up season when it's hot to incubate their eggs. So salties need um, the grass grown from the wet season. They scratch it up and it starts to break down in compost and that's what incubates their eggs. But there's all sorts of, you know, nests. Like, be hard to say. There's not any one sort of nest. There's different areas, different country. They'll use different things. They'll use mud. They'll use gravel if they have to, but, you know, those those nests aren't what we would class as, as good areas or good good eggs. When we go and collect eggs, we're looking for good, strong eggs, and that depends on the nesting area that they're in, whether they're healthy eggs or not. Have you ever actually seen a croc 
build a nest, like got to watch one, I guess, from a distance or watch a video or anything? I couldn't say I've seen one make a nest because they normally do it at night. Crocodiles through the day aren't normally out through the day. They're normally in water or somewhere unforeseen. Nighttime is their time. So nighttime they would come out and scratch in their stuff. Um, some, some, I've been in a lot of different locations. I, w- I would say that some of the best nests I've ever seen are from Coburg. They, they make nests that are pretty much waist high. I'm, I'm sure it takes them days and days and days to do, to do that. And I've been to other areas that they'll make them like literally just scratch up a bit of mud and chuck their eggs in it. So <laughs> some are more fussy than others, exactly. I guess. Exactly. Like every, every area is different. Um, yeah. They don't normally do it through the day. They normally do it through the night. And that's when they're out, and that's what they do. And then they normally are good, like the good females. They'll scratch a nest up, and they'll wait for it to warm up. If they've used the right materials, obviously not mud, grass. And they'll they'll keep going back and testing. They they'll test the grass, wait for it to warm up before they lay their eggs in it. So that could take up to a week. So. The rain comes in, it's cold weather, might put them off, they'll abandon that nest. They won't even lay in it and they'll wait. They'll scratch another one and they'll do another nest. I certainly encourage everyone listening to go and Google what a croc egg nest looks like, even though they all look different. But as as Norman just said, some of them can be waist high and they are massive. And I just think it's fascinating that they can build these structures when they have these like teeny tiny little arms and legs. Like, there's not much there to work with. Um, well, I, yeah, it fascinates me too, and I see them all the time. I mean, what they can scratch up with their feet, you couldn't pull with your hands. You'd, you'd, you'd need a whippersnipper. Yep. And, and it's not only how they scratch it up, it's how they lay it. They, they, they lay it in a set way. And if, if you go there and disturb a nest, most times, I'm not saying all times, but most times, if you disturb a nest, and they haven't laid in it, and you open it, they know. They can smell it. They can feel it. I don't know what they do, but most times they won't come back and lay in it. They'll abandon it because you've been there. So it's kind of like, you know, if someone's come and picked up your beer and had a sip of it by accident and they put it back down, you go, yeah, no, nah, I'm not touching exactly. that now. Exactly. You've I'm come back that. and gone, oh, someone's touched this. Yeah. I'm not going there. That's insane. And also, um, you know, it's it, – must take a bit of time and you know a fair bit of effort to make these nests. Do they use the same ones? Like, do they kind of have their own little turf and their little territory and make their nests, and then kind of that's it for them? Or how does that work? The funny thing about crocodiles is that they never. I always say that you get a random nest, or a nest will pop up here somewhere, and it'll be like a once-off. But the real breeders, they mostly always nest nearly the same spot. It's not exact spot on the last nest but within spitting distance yeah they'll okay. make another nest so they they won't use the last year's nest but they'll no. build a new one sort of in well, that area sometimes they scratch over like on a rare well sometimes they scratch over an old nest but mostly they'll make a nest beside the last nest so if some unforeseen thing comes in say like um a fire or a flood or something that upsets their area they just won't make a nest because they won't move 200 metres over there to a good spot because this is their spot. I guess humans, we cycle and have, you know, release eggs every 21 days on average and cattle, 
you know, they have their cycles and they, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for them throughout the year. How often will a crocodile lay their eggs? Well, they only lay it once, like a, in the wet season. So just once a year? Just once a year, yeah. And how many eggs would they lay on average, do you think? Depends on the female, depends how old she is, depends on the country she's in and, and the environment she's got to nest with. But mostly, mostly you can do an average over the whole year of about 40 eggs, 40 to 45 eggs per nest. And so as you're saying before, in if this were in the wild and a crocodile were out somewhere, you know, laying eggs, you know, about 40, not many would make it to maturity as as an adult crocodile. So some may not even hatch, but even then those that do hatch not all survive. Well, yeah, it, it's it's probably, I don't know, a lot, a lot would hatch, but they never make the maturity. You know, orcs eat them, guanas eat them, barramundi eat them, crocodiles eat them. You know, so if you're a little croc hitting the water, you know, until you get big enough to bite back, you're in trouble. I find that really interesting because that is very similar to the concept of turtles hatching and they hatch on their ne- their um, eggs and then they have to make that little that little trek down to the water at the beach and not a lot of turtles make it to being an adult turtle. But turtles are like these helpless little creatures and then yeah. it's just weird to think of a, a baby crocodile being at the bottom of the pecking order and, and when you yeah. know you compare it to a turtle, but it's more or less in the same boat as a turtle really. Yeah, well, that's how they start off. But obviously when they get to a certain size, I mean, the tables turn. Yeah, you know? they certainly do. So um, what... A lot of people probably don't realise that most of the croc population in the wild are males. So the optimum temperature for a nest to hatch out is 32 degrees. So if you have a, a nest at 32 degrees, they'll all hatch out and they'll all be males. Females are only coldness or hotness, but coldness and hotness also kill them. And nobody knows where the sex is determined, whether it's the first day, first hour, first week, or first what. But that's why 75% of the crocs in the wild are males, and there's only 25% females. Wow. So if you so when let's say you get a, a nest of 40 eggs and all 40 hatch, does that mean that they're all either male or female? Or exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. this is a bit of a guess too. Maybe the bottom of the nest is colder than the top. Uh, Who okay. knows? Yep. But one would say that the whole nest would be males or the whole nest would be females. And 75 per, 75% of the nest would be males. So there is um, a certain – I noticed you guys had a, a very specific technique when collecting the eggs – that it's not like you go and pick up chook eggs and chuck them in a bucket. And obviously these are worth a lot more than a chook egg. Um, but aside from, you know, putting them in a special container and, and packing them a, a certain way, you were very careful in keeping them in the same orientation as to what you found them in the nest. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, obviously when a female lays them, like she just drops them in the nest. But for us, when we collect them, we've got to find the high side of them. Um, so we we've got to mark the highest side of the nest because the embryo of the egg, sorry. So the embryo sits on the highest side of the egg, and if you roll it more than forty five degrees, the embryo, which is the crocodile, drowns, smothers itself in its own egg. So when we collect a nest, 
we have to mark the high side and, and collect them and, and put them, place them in our eskies high side up. Otherwise, they'll smother themselves. And so that bit doesn't happen, though, until... So when, when the crocodile's laying the eggs, they can kind of drop out any it which way. Matter, yeah. And then, But it's once they've dropped out, then that embryo will attach on the highest point, or, the, you know, kind of like the surface... Most exactly. Part. Within the first day, yeah, when the eggs are dropped in willy nilly, the embryo will float to the top side and attach itself. Once it's attached to the egg, like it's normally just floating, but once it's attached, then if you roll it, it's smothered. I wonder how many people, like how long it took people to figure that out. That you know they kept collecting these eggs. And they weren't realising and they're just packing them in and whatnot. And then they're like, why aren't any of these hatching or, you know, continuing to grow? Yeah. And how frustrating would that be that you put yourself in such a dangerous position yeah. and then you get nothing for it? Like, I wonder what poor bugger had to figure that one out. Well, it wasn't me. <laughs> um, I'd come after all that. I, I would say a lot of credit went to Graham Webb and um, Brett Otley and Stuart Barker. They were probably the pioneers of all this egg collecting. And, I mean, um, I know all those guys and um, listen to their stories collecting in the early days, even areas that we're collecting now, they said weren't viable back then. So um, it tells me that, you know, I know the crocodile um, population is obviously exploding, but back then creeks and rivers and that that we collect now weren't viable enough, so it shows me that, Females are coming of age now and nesting in areas that weren't back when they were doing it. So, you know, we're, we're harvesting areas now that they could never do that's viable for us. Now, you have a croc farm as well as collecting nests, I guess, in the wild, using the little inverted air quotes here, but your croc farm is quite different to a traditional croc farm. So can you first explain what... Your standard average croc farm setup is like, and then we'll go into what your and how yours is different. Well, most croc farms, well, old croc farms, I'd say, have breeder pens. They'll have male and female per pens, um, where they have two females to one male, so on, so on. Um, our farm is a, is a natural billabong. It's um, we fenced it off. It's 11 kilometres of fencing around it. So it's a natural environment that we have our breeders in so they don't even know that they're in a farm. And, I mean, we supplement with feed, but I also have natural feed for them. We introduce barramundi and whatever else we can do for them for natural hunting. Um, But we just supplement with with a bit of extra feeding just to keep them happy. They don't even know they're enclosed. We have an electric fence, which no one's ever done before, around the billabong. Um, occasionally I see where they come up and walk along the fence and they bump bump the wire and, and realise that they can't go through and they go back to the billabong. Um, that's just for new crocs coming into an area, settling in. Takes them a bit to settle in. If they've come from somewhere else, we, we get all the females from around Darwin delivered. Well, we pick them up, deliver them out there. So all the wild females caught in all the conservation traps we, we take out there, we buy. So they're all our breeders. And our farm really is the only natural farm 
in the territory. I couldn't. I, could, I would say in Australia. So it's it's. I guess essentially it's a free range croc farm. It is a free range croc farm. And I got to ask you about this fence. So I just you know when you said we put a fence around the billabong, I think well how do you keep a crocodile in? Mm. And also I wonder crocodiles aren't very tall animals, and even though they can climb up. How many strands of wire do you need or do you use ring lock? You know, I guess, well, it's electric. And then how high do you have to make a fence? Because, you know, if they only kind of move along the ground, do they only need, you know, is it a fence you can step over yourself then if they're not going to go up and over or how does that all work? Um, I've come up with the idea when obviously back here at Swim Creek, um, we have a four-wire fence for buffalo, an earth, the power, an earth and a power. I've seen where crocs have come up and touched the power wire, like off the floodplain, come up, crawled up, touched the power wire and, and got booted and, and, and headed back off. And that that gave the idea for this crock fence. And then I had parks and wildlife out there, showed them around, and I said, well, what's the criteria of fence that I have to build for this farm? And they said, well, you can do what you want because... You know, in any industrial area, if you lose a croc, it's your fault. So I thought, well, I want to do electric fence because I've seen it work at home and it's, you know, the farms have a different criteria where they have to do like a mesh fence and post so many metres apart and leaning inwards and all sorts of things. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to do electric fence here. So I, we, well, we done an earth, Power, earth, power, earth, power, like for every hole on the picket. So I think there's 11 wires um, from memory on our fence. And so far, I mean, we have lost a couple, but that's due, um, you know, power being off or tree over the fence or something silly. But I could say probably 99% of the time we're holding our crocs with electric fence. I'm just thinking... God forbid I ever need to run out of the croc farm and I'm going to hit the fence and not be able to get out. Yeah, it's not one <laughs> fence you want to touch. No, definitely not. What is the difference, you know, in a croc farm versus your farm? Like, have you found many, like you said, they kind of come up, they bump the fence, they realise, you know, it's a very quick response to learn, you know. But I know in sometimes in croc farms, crocs will fight through fences and kind of can get tangled up in wire and whatnot. Do you ever see anything like that in your fences or has it been pretty, you know, no incidents? The thing the thing about our pen, I guess, our fences not nowhere near the billabong. So they've got to leave the billabong and walk for quite a long way before they even hit the fence. So probably... Half the reason the fence works is that time they get to the fence, they're already losing interest of leaving the billabong because they've already just been so far. So they hit the fence and they walk along it. Whereas I guess farms are, you know, side by side, so it's it's a bit different scenario. My scenario is, is that you know they come out and they're they're way out in the bush somewhere. They hit the fence and they walk along it rather than push through it. I guess the other thing as well compared to a, a- traditional croc farm is that your crocodiles have so much space to move around in so that you know whereas if you're in a pen and then you've got your neighbor and another pen and you're gonna have a barney with him you can only go so far to the other side of the pen and then you're gonna hit another crocodile over there you kind of you know got crocs on all sides of you so it's probably it's would be substantially 
easier for them if they get in a bit of an altercation to retreat, like they've got space Mm. to take flight. Do you find, do you come across, have you seen any evidence of crocodiles having fights in the billabong or do you find that there's enough space that they can generally kind of just both scatter and take and retreat? I'm sure they do fight. I mean, that's what they do. I mean, they have areas and they have territory, but I mean, I don't know. This is just a guess for everyone. You ask all the experts, they have an opinion and everyone's different. But from what I can see, I mean, I've seen them, big males lying side by side. If they're happy and they're content, they don't seem to bother. And I I think the key is out there is um, keep them happy, keep them fed. They don't feel that they have a threat for anything. I don't know, I'm only guessing here, but so far we haven't had any problems yet. Now I have to ask, you are in this business with your wife and you both fly helicopters and you collect the eggs together, sometimes with extra helpers. But when I went out with you, we went up in a chopper and you were spotting the nests and she would bring up the airboat and somebody would tie on a marker to a kind of a tree so we knew where the nest was roughly and then we all got back in the airboat and you'd, you'd kind of drive the boat around to each spot where you'd identified a fresh nest or a nest that you thought had eggs in it, and we'd all get out and go in to collect. So you and your wife are going together to collect eggs. I know it's one thing to be, you know, like you said, when you're starting out, young fella and he's, you know, mid-20s, you know, bullet a gate, take on the world. Now you've got, like, the love of your life with you as well. Um, does that ever – do you ever get distracted collecting a nest or worried? You know, I'm, I'm saying that, though. Marnie is an absolute boss and she can hold her own. Absolutely. Um, what can't she do? But do you ever, like, just look and be like, oh, my God, like, you know, get distracted and be thinking about her while you're at a nest? Um, no, I mean, she's experienced. I mean, I'd, yeah, I, I think that – we're all, I mean, I, we, we never approach a nest. I'm, I'm not thinking that, you know, we're doing anything wrong or she's doing anything wrong. I mean, we've all done it for a long time. I mean, we only go in when we're comfortable. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't worry about her and she doesn't worry about me because she knows I can do it and she can do it. So, I think that makes, I suppose, for like a stronger relationship or a stronger marriage. Um. Oh, I think it makes it a better business. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we, we don't talk when we're when we're around the crock nest because we don't have to. Like she knows what I'm doing, and I know what she's doing. Well-oiled machine. Exactly. I mean, you don't have to explain things as you're going because you know we've done that much. Um, we just it's just just we we see what's in front of us and we we she can see what I'm doing and and I can see what she's doing and we just roll on um we probably don't say anything really and then that's just the job we get it done the other thing i have to ask you about is how do you tell cuz you have and you are known for having this like sixth sense of where a crocodile is we were collecting a nest towards the end of the day i was with you and there was the nest and you're like, Steph, I'm going to come move this, this mama croc off. Well, you didn't call her mama croc, but you know, you're going to come move the female off before so that it's safe to collect the nest. And I'm looking going, where is she? And you're like, otherwise you're like, it's right there. I'm like, where? And you're pointing at this puddle and it's literally a puddle. It's not a lake. It's not a lagoon. It's not a billow. It's a puddle. And I'm like, but where? And you're like right there. And I'm like, oh, oh, I think I see something in there. It looks like a really little, it's just a little girl, right? And you're like, mm, 
no, she's not that little. I would have, I mean, in saying that though, if this was like a thicket somewhere in, you know, Kakadu, you know, whatever this part of the world, no. I wouldn't have been bushwalking out there on my own, of my own volition anyway. But for if some reason, if I would have been, I would have just walked right past, not even like, not even battered an eyelid, not even realized that this tiny little puddle that there's a big mama croc in there. How do you tell where they are? Like, Oh, well, How do you have Steph, a survival um, instinct? Steph, the best way I can answer that is I guess I'm, well, you, you know, that's my industry, my job. I'm, I'm tuned for it. Um, I probably see and I mean, like anyone that, that does this sort of job has to be sharp at what they're doing. Otherwise, they're not going to survive. I mean, it'd be like me, you know, it'd be, be like you having a sail at Kmart. <laughs> You know, you, you'll know what's happening at the end of the aisle and I'll rock up and go, I wouldn't have a clue what's going on down there, but you would. I love that you've only met me once and yet you know that, and that is me, I would know what's going that's, on at that's Kmart. What I, mean. I mean, I know what's happening there in the bush around the nest. Oh. I wouldn't have a clue what's happening in the shopping centre. That's so brilliant. I just, I've heard of a lot of stories about you from, from mutual friends where they've said, you know, they've gone out with you and you've, you've been like, well, you've like been like, nah, there's nothing here. And you walk past that puddle and then you go, nah, there's something in there and you touch it and a croc jumps out. And this, this other person, Larry was saying, he's like, there's no idea how he's like, he's like, all the puddles look the same. I had no idea how he could tell. And that one time Larry had to stay somewhere and you're like, Larry, stand here. And he goes, oh, but I'll go stand up here. And you're like, no, no, like stand here. Like this is where you need to be. And you just have this, you know what you're doing, which thank goodness, because well, like, like we said. That's environment. I mean, you, you got to know your own environment. Yeah. If you don't know that, well, you're no good. Now, obviously you've been doing this for about 20 years, so you're probably fairly comfortable with what you do. But when you first started out or even, you know, as a kid coming across a crocodile, did you ever feel scared or do you still ever have a moment where you like, like you know and you just kind of get caught out and have that adrenaline rush i was always scared of crocodiles to be honest and until i understood them once you understand them and then you can see you can you can work off their reactions to how they're thinking once you can understand their reactions and then that puts you in as in like the upper hand because you can see from their reaction whether you're on top or you're on the bottom See, that sounds so logical and like working cattle, and yet I'm still terrified of crocodiles. So, can you can you explain that out a bit more? Like, what what is it there to understand aside from the fact that they just want to eat you? Well, or, but or do they want to eat no, you? Really, they don't always want to eat you. Sometimes they just want to defend themselves. Sometimes they just want to hide. So you've just got to work out that scenario when you're there and you got to look at them and sum it up and sum up the situation sum sum up the nest the location of the nest all the elements around there because that will make the difference and if 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 you can see what they're thinking and then that will um give you your you know determine your risks of collecting the nest so whether they're still sitting there and you leave them there and you collect the eggs or, you know, you've got to move them on or you don't have to move them on, it's just totally on the whole environment where the nest is and how they're thinking at the time. What will determine when you hang up your croc egg collecting boots, even though 
you know, it's not always feasible to wear boots in the, these environments. Um, but, but figuratively, you know, will you just do this until your body doesn't allow you to? Well, my long-term plan is I'll make a wheelchair ramp off my handboat <laughs> and I'll wheel in and do them. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I've got, I've got two sons and a daughter. I mean, they're all bush-orientated and probably will follow my footsteps where they'll go and do it out in the wild, um, like with the permits that I've got out in Arnhem Land and elsewhere, or we just go back to the farm. But um, either way, that decision's theirs. But for me, you know, I think I'll always be active for as long as I can. Now, I can't let you get out of this podcast without spinning a few yarns, but, of course, this is a family show. So have you got any PG yarns that you can share with us? Because you would have seen goodness knows how many things. I guess I could tell you a couple of mild ones. We'll save the real ones for when people come meet you in person around a campfire. Yeah, eh? Yeah, got to keep some things close to the chest. But I guess what I could say is probably a couple of yarns that, incidents on a few nests um i guess one time me and a um traditional owner was walking in on a nest somewhere out there and um he was in front of me um belting the grass down like you've got to imagine the grass being about eight foot tall and and you have a uh, have a stick Obviously, the stick is the ultimate weapon when you're around a crock nest because you've, you know, you use the stick to defend yourself and, and find where the female is in the holes and whatever. So, we also use the stick to belt the grass down to make a path when we're walking in through the water and, and, and that to get to the nest. And he was in front of me and I was carrying the, you know, the crate or the esky for the eggs. So he's, he's belting his way in and I'm behind him a few, few paces behind him and he's getting in, he's getting to the nest area. And, you know, when you're doing a nest, there's always a zone around the nest that the female protects. So once you get into her zone, you sort of have to start being more careful other than just walking through the swamp and getting worried about other crocodiles that are just laying around the swamp. Once you get into the zone of the nest, that's just an extra risk. So when you get to the in there, which he did, he was belting the grass down, and I guess the end of the stick was getting to the edge of her zone, and she flew out and attacked the end of his stick, and I guess he thought maybe retreat is the best thing. And he come flying past me. I was a few steps back. He come running past me with a stick. And I thought the stick's going to poke me in the eye. And I grabbed the stick with one hand and I held onto it. And he went straight past me. And I just twisted the stick and he went around, ended up upside down behind me. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, crocodile. It's like, of course there's a crocodile. I came into a nest. <laughs> I mean, that's just what you would expect. Well, what I would well, expect. Well, you know, um, and he was... he jumped up out of the water because he fell over in the grass. He jumped up and he's like, "Don't tell no one." <laughs> <laughs> I 
I said, no, I won't tell no one. <laughs> no, I'm just, just the entire podcast <laughs> that, audience. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Well, it was only last week that, you know, we got to a nest and like I said, there was the croc there and you were saying, well, get ready to, to get a picture. I've just got to, I'll poke my stick in there and get it to move out so we can go and collect this nest safely. And I'm there with my camera poised, ready to go. And then you poke her and she jumped out, not anywhere in the direction of us. Like it was like the opposite direction. But when she came out, she didn't even really jump out. Like she just kind of exited. Mm. And I just was like, oh, hell no, and turned and ran also. So I can very much empathize with that, Mm. T.O. It happened very quickly. Yeah. I guess another time, a couple of stories here, I suppose, come in the light. Um, Another time, me and my cousin was walking through this big blady grass, going to a nest, and I'm in the front. He's carrying the esky. It's like a single man track. I'm bashing the grass down, getting in, getting in, getting in. And as we're getting there, like there's tunnels, there's tunnels under the grass where the crocs have been moving backwards and forwards. So I'm looking this way, looking that way. Yeah, tunnel here, tunnel there. I'm getting closer, getting closer. And I'm hitting the grass down and there's biggest commotion. And my hearing's not the best. And he, I heard him say, look out, whatever. And instinct was, well, I'm thinking, females turned up behind us or beside us through one of these tunnels. So I turned around to run back, get out of the zone. And somewhere, I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at, back down my trail that we just made. I'm thinking, where is he? Where is he? And then... I hear behind me, what, what are you doing, what are you doing? And I look back and I just run right over him. <laughs> <laughs> I I turned around when he said, look out, and I stood on him, stomped him in the water, <laughs> run over him and kept going. <laughs> he jumped up, he wanted to fight me, he lost his glasses and I'm like, hang on, you want to fight me? Where's a crocodile? I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. I'm looking for a crocodile. I'm looking for a fight. I don't know. That is like the epitome of every man for himself. Exactly. <laughs> hey. yeah, exactly. I was like, I was out of there. Oh, I love that. And, and anything else that comes to mind? Um, I guess another time with the same same mate, same fella, was going to a nest. And we're in pretty deep water, pretty stupid, I guess, when I think back at it. I, I don't think I'll do it now. was in water over our knees, going through thick grass, and I hate spiders. I, I literally hate spiders. And he's in front of me with a stick, and we're just getting to the edge of the zone of the nest. And um, I'm behind him, and I've seen this big spider skipping across the water coming towards me i hate spiders and i'm like ah big spider coming keep going keep going he's like oh i can't find where this female is here so don't worry just keep going get get out get up there get up there because there's big spider coming and i'm i've got the esky and i put it down i'm i'm thinking and this spider's like up on all his legs on top of the water trying to strike and I'm like, well, I'm going to pull a gun out. I'm going to shoot this spider. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've got my back on his back and I'm pushing, <laughs> I'm pushing him. And he's like, crocodile here. I'm like, spider here. <laughs> Don't worry about the crocodile. This spider. I'm going to shoot this spider. 
So we had another blue there. <laughs> I just can't believe that you're like, oh, yeah, you know, hundreds of kilos, you know, big crocodile, multiple, multiple teeth could easily rip me into shreds. Nah, not worried about that. But no. this teeny tiny little spider, it's like not relatively. It's a teeny tiny spider. You should but, have seen it. It's like the side of your hand, this one. <laughs> but <Seriously>. still. <laughs> no way. That's more, way more. I mean, I would be like freaked out too, but I'm also scared of crocodiles, so. Yeah, oh, I know, but I understand him. I don't understand spiders. Spider. That is a good point. That's a good point. Well, at least um, it's not just the crocodiles giving you the adrenaline rush. So to wrap up, if you had to describe your experience working with crocodiles and collecting, you know, if you had to describe it to someone, you know, it sounds like a pretty full-on dangerous, you know, always adrenaline, you know, rushing through your veins experience. How? How? What is the reality of it? Well, now, now I understand it all. To me, it's just like everything else we do: working buffalo, working cattle, going fencing, whatever. Um, it's just what we do. I don't, I don't get worried about it. Don't get stressed about it. I don't get, you know. To me, it's just like part of the job that we do, and I understand it, and it's really easy, to be honest. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.